Hi everyone, welcome to a very special anniversary episode of Your Double Podcast. We have released over 50 episodes so far through the last year, and this is a very special episode. We have a group of people who have been fighting the abduction and alienation issue in Japan. This is going to be an in-depth discussion between them on topics such as the experience a left-behind parent goes through, how people can help, how politicians and global agencies can help, and so much more. I know what you're thinking. So who are the guests? But before we get to that, this is going to be a two-part episode. Some guests will appear in part one, and some others in part two, as it's hard to get six high-profile individuals who are busy in their own life in a single call. The good news is that they all have been guests in our podcast before this. Now, who are the guests? We have the co-founders of FMP, Enrique and Daniel, with us. We also have Vincent Fichot, James Cook, Thomas Saviskas, and Rachel Endo. All of them are left behind parents, and luckily for Rachel Endo, she has been reunited with her kids. You can listen to our previous episodes with them to know more about their stories. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. All right, guys. Let's move on to the next question. What are some of the costs that a parent end up having to manage this whole abduction and alienation thing that's happening? What did it cost you personally? As we normally discuss things that happen during the period of the abduction, but we rarely have discussed a lot about the cost that was incurred while managing this alienation and abduction. This cost here can be financial cost or personal cost or relationship cost, any way that you want to interpret it. Why don't you start, James? Uh, well, I'm glad you fleshed out, you know, the guidance on that answer. Um, the financial costs, uh, I, I won't necessarily get into because um, I created my own financial problems prior to all this, and they just compounded. Um, but the this, as my uh, attorney, local attorney, uh, was so eloquent in pointing out one time, but she said this costs you everything everything in my life, anything and everything that mattered, it cost me this. It's cost me friendships. It's cost me strained relationships with some of my relatives. It's cost me uh, financially, which you know, the theory is you can always make back money. It cost me, uh, you know, financially like bankruptcy. It cost me um, relationally. I don't know that I, it's not that I don't trust women. You know, that's not that thing. And I'm not saying that just because I'm going to say something. Like this. It is, I don't make permanent plans for anything. I, a big decision for me was to actually buy a car and have a car payment. Because what if I got the word that I could go live in Japan and see my kids? I'm fucking leaving that car. Same thing with a house. I rent apartments because, and then I rent apartments that are far bigger than what I need just in case they might come. Or I look at buying a house. If I buy a house, do I buy it with uh, two, three bedrooms or do I buy it with more just in case they come back? And what if my ex-wife wants to come back and everything's cool? 
or maybe my older boys will come. And so I have, my life has been on hold for seven years. It's been frozen in my heart in many ways, emotionally, it's been frozen in terms of progress. I don't commit to a lot of things at all. And it's cost me the, that, that level of commitment and confidence into making a, a, a long-term decision on anything. That's what it's cost me. Still today, I live temporarily. I, I, live, as, I, I live my way, I form relationships, I make financial commitments with the mind to that I could just drop this in a second if circumstances with my kids change. So I'm unable to be committed to anybody or really anything. And that create it's created unrest in my in my job. Not I mean I'm, a, I'm not a bad employee in any way. I'm not a bad leader uh, for the people I lead. But my commitment to my employer is not 100 percent because it's like you know I'll, you know in my back of my mind I could I'll drop this in a in a New York minute if it means I can go see my kids. You know the you know and so I don't want to buy a house. It's like I'm in a mortgage. I don't want to commit to that because I might be able to go see my kids or they might come. You know. So that's, it's the ability to commit to something and move on and make a plan in my life. That is what it's cost me is the, is the ability to commit, to make a plan because there's always in the back of my mind that what if, what if things change is there's, you know, people put the happy thing in an instant, something could change the benefit for you. Don't ever give up. Right. Well, okay. Well, the ugly flip side of that is, well, don't make any lasting commitments because if it does change, you want to be as free and liquid financially and as personally as you possibly can. So I've shortchanged my employer. I've shortchanged my uh, romantic relationships. I've shortchanged a lot of people in my life because my first commitment is to my kids and to resolve this situation. And I will drop all of that just to be with my kids again. And so that's what it's cost me. Okay. Um, yeah, I, um, I have a lot of similar apprehension that, um, that Cook was talking about where you feel like your life is on hold. And um, I don't have that problem as much anymore because I got my kids back, but I still have it um, to a, a degree with a lot of things. Um, uh, but yeah, when they were gone, I, I had to always hold out hope. And so I couldn't make any commitments or, I mean, even during the divorce, um, I knew my ex wasn't going to follow the rules of the divorce, but I had to pretend that he was going to follow. Like, so if he was going to do the settlement like he was supposed to, or pay any child support like he was supposed to, then I could tell my children you know, okay, we're going to live here because I, I know I have this much money to get this house or I know you're going to go to this school or that sort of thing. And um, I was supposed to believe that was true when it wasn't. I knew he wasn't going to pay. But for the purposes of my trial in America, the judge believed it was true. Um, whenever we go in front of the judge, I had to assume or um, I had to assume that that uh, he was going to do what he was said he was going to do, you know, to the judge. So I couldn't make any decisions, um, and um, you know that's that's how it affected me before they were kidnapped. But um, 
you know, when the divorce started, I had not been given any child support orders because my ex convinced the judge that we didn't have time to litigate that because he had to leave right away for a job transfer back to Japan. So the judge acquiesced and did not litigate child support. So I got full physical custody and no money to take care of the kids when I was a stay-at-home mom. And we were in a house that his company was paying 4,000 a month for, and now they're suddenly not paying for it. And I have no income whatsoever. So I was already borrowing tons of money. I borrowed tons of money for the lawyer, for rent, for food, for everything. So I was already heavily in debt before the kids were kidnapped. Um, then when they were kidnapped, I was actually already homeless because um, he canceled the lease on the house and I couldn't borrow any more money to maintain the house. So I had to go live with family. And my family is, is very toxic. Um, you know, I think most of us um, come from toxic families, which makes us easy targets to these to toxic partners. So my family is very to uh, toxic. So I couldn't stay with them very long. And I ended, up, um, I ended up homeless after I got the kids back and we came back to America. I stayed with family and shortly after I ended up homeless. So now, um, you know, because uh, Corona hit also, I had trouble looking for work and things like that. So um, I was like $200,000 in debt when I finally got my kids back. And I had to borrow $50,000 for the lawyer in Japan um, from my, from my, my mother. And um, uh, I didn't finish answering Enrique earlier when he asked me, what did the judge do, if anything, to compensate? Well, when I got the kids back, he... He tried to be kind of generous. He was on the, trying to be on the generous side when he ordered the, um, the child support and the um, alimony and things. But he couldn't, he couldn't even really order any damages. And he had to make sure it was completely fair so that he didn't get accused. The judge didn't get you know, appealed or accused of, of ruling unfairly. So we had to all, still be as fair as possible follow as many rules as possible. So um, it's as generous as the judge could be while still following the rules. And, you know, it didn't help me any though because my ex had already skipped the country. It took all the money with him and there was no money in America for the judges to, you know, for the courts to access. So um, it put me in a homeless shelter. I have debt collectors calling and I still have uh, bills to my lawyers that I can't pay. And um, I, you know, can't can't even break even, you know, even with my current bills, let alone my old my old bills. So I'm uh, to put it um, succinctly, I'm two hundred thousand dollars in debt and uh, homeless. But I got my kids back. But I, I have to be grateful for that. Well, I can. Uh... I can relate to James a lot uh, about having a life being frozen or on hold, so to speak, because uh, every every long-term decision I try to make, uh, having a child abducted, and and having this, uh, I, I almost can call it fantasy by now, about the child uh, being returned or, or gaining access 
uh, too is is like literally you can't you can't plan a lot of things to go forward. You can't you can't move, uh, let's say, to a different country because uh, if if access is gonna happen, like in particular in my case, if access is gonna happen, it can only happen in Japan. So so I'm I'm kind of imprisoning myself in Japan with the hope that uh, maybe this year, maybe next year, or maybe sometime, whatever time soon, I'll be able to, to see my daughter and be however small part in her life. But uh, this kind of thinking really hindrances on, on moving forward. Uh, in regards to work, in regards to house, in regards to a lot of things. And this is one of the things which, uh, which a lot of people, unfortunately, will not understand. They will be like, oh, why don't you move uh, away and, and just do this and that? And if things, you know, happen to turn around, you can always go back. No, you can't always go back because when you build, once you build your life around something, it's very difficult to throw, uh, to change, especially uh, when you know the, the situation in Japan, how, let's say, even by miraculous case you're gonna get access to your children and then you throw everything through whatever you were doing and and get to that uh, get to get to that situation to be uh to try to be involved in it and uh, on the on the flimsiest of wills whims of the other party you can lose that in a heartbeat and then what do you do you, you're gonna start again from zero so this is this is like a big big deal for me, uh, and I I've I hear a lot of uh, left behind parents saying exactly that that the life is literally on hold, on pause, waiting for something concrete to happen, and that concrete to happen thing, it's really far far away in a in a very distant future, unfortunately. Yeah, in my, in my own case or my situation. Um, in hindsight, uh, no, I'll save that comment for a different question. Maybe, um, when, after they left, I was in a, I worked for like peanuts. Okay. Uh, I didn't even make 15 bucks an hour at doing medical assembly for three years in way below what I used to I mean, like a tiny fraction of what I used to make. Okay. Simply because. I had to be, I had to have a job that I could throw away and leave and then go back to, or, you know, and then go get some other staffing firm job just because at a drop of a hat, I had to go to Japan and I had to be available to be there for a while and not have to worry about being fired, which meant I, my living conditions were very diminished, diminished. I mean, I rented a room in someone's basement or their house. And so I lived very miserly just because something could change. Had my ex-wife, or wife at that time, we hadn't been divorced yet, had she had the wherewithal to have actually communicated with me, I could have attained a better job, <laughs> been making more money, and maybe even paying her some of that. And I even offered, I even offered her a big amount of money and to drop the, the whole proceeding and let's work out an agreement, and she refused that. She would be much better off legally. There wouldn't be a warrant for her arrest. She'd be much better off financially because I would have paid her had she had 
the had people around her coaching her to go, wait, 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 you this you've known him for most of your adult life at the she lived more years in the United States and she lived in Japan until just recently. OK, um, you know, this guy to always be fair. Why don't you just trust it and, and take his offers and things will work out? But she had a crazy attorney. She still does that. I think in other people who have an agenda like my father, um, because I don't think my I don't, quite honestly, I think my dad's going to spend everything he has to make sure my kids never talk to me because it's going to take me about an afternoon to explain to them all the bullshit they were told. And I think he's got to go all in because being the narcissist he is, he's, he's made up a huge facade and he's got that can't that's going to crumble and shatter with some facts really quickly. And then he can't live with that. Um, he can't because my kids will never look upon him the same way again. Uh, once they find out the reality and the truth, the true truth about a lot of this, but nonetheless, same thing with my ex-wife. She's going to, you know, either there's some facts that she's shaded that I can see in, in that, but that's the digression. Um, but that, uh, those decisions we make, um, all of that, that temporary living being frozen in place is, has made it very difficult to move on in life so i guess that you know beyond the financial costs that that's that is still i'll reiterate that is the biggest cost is this inability to move forward and i i kind of envy and quite honestly judge some of these people that i've met along the way who've gone and remarried and had more children after that i can't i, I i'm i'm never gonna get married again i'll just say that i'm never gonna get married again i only have ever married one woman in my life i'm only gonna have one wife i divorced and we're divorced and I can't imagine, in my mind and my heart, I can't imagine ever having another bride or any more children. I've only ever had one family and I'll ever, or only ever will. That's how, that's my mindset and that's how it's a frozen I am about this. I can't move on. Yeah, I, I had the same problem with the, like having a throwaway job when I was in the divorce before the kids left and I got a job just to show the courts that I was making efforts. And I had the same apprehension about getting a job because I knew I'd have to throw it away because I knew they were going to get kidnapped and like, and they did, you know, and I had to just rush to Japan and just left that job behind. And that's exactly what happened. I just had to throw away that job, but you know, it's same problem. Just putting your life on hold for all these things, never knowing what's going to happen next because you know, what's going to happen next, but nobody believes you. And you have to just follow this, this narrative that everyone thinks you're supposed to do when you know the truth and you can't, you can't live, it's, you can't live your life that way. Well, uh, another, another thing I would like to point out uh, to the audience is that uh, the expectations, the expectations from these uh, uh, left behind parents, the life is, as bad as bad can be at that point, yet you go in court and the judge will be expecting you to function like nothing ever happened. And uh, for example, like like Rachel pointed out, uh, you, you'll need to have a job just just in order to show that you're trying. And then nobody nobody will come and say like, oh, but it's it's normal to be to be a bit broken because that kind 
that kind of calamity drives people to suicide. And instead of suiciding yourself, you know, you're just not having a job right now. So that shouldn't be that bad. But in fact, and, and this happened to me in Japan too, you know, when, uh, when I went to court and they, they told me, oh, you're, you're, you're jobless, you're bad. Because in Japan, basically, if, if you're jobless, is very bad. Thief, being a thief in Japan is better because thief is an occupation, is, is, a, is a, some, somewhat like a part-time job too. So uh, the judge was like, oh my goodness, you're not working, you're bad. You, you can't be, you know, you, you can't be regarded as a, as a good person just because you don't work. And when I told them that my work is to find where my daughter is, they were like, oh my goodness, you're, now you're, you're talking uh, like retarded. You know, now, now we see why, 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 why your wife ran away with a child, you know, because you, can't, you cannot function like a normal person. And it's sometimes you just really want to to level down to them and ask, well, what about if your children were taken? What what will be the next step you're gonna do? Uh, you wake up in the morning, you see that your children taken away, they've been abducted by North Korea, by your spouse, by Al Qaeda, by whomever. What's your next step? You're gonna go to the job agency to look for work? Well, what what are you gonna do? Oh yeah, on that regard. Um... I've had instances of everything that James and uh, has have mentioned um, and Rachel. Um, yeah, I've had instances of those um, of everything is on hold because you don't know when you have to go to Japan and and to some yeah and not being able to make commitments to anything. Um, however, I think my biggest but my biggest thing is always like. I need to have something stable so when they do come, uh, in my mind, I'm set that I'm going to get them back. And when I mean them, I mean Yumi, who she's technically still my wife and, and my child. Um, but um, I think I've, I've just focused like... Unfortunately, James, your case was something that I knew before going to Japan of. Um, I didn't know you back then. I didn't know you in 2018. I didn't know details of your case, but I knew that you were all over the news. And I said, that's not, I, if, I, if I stay here and that does happen, um, the probabilities are that. that will happen to me um, if I stay here. So in my mind, I knew I had to make it work somehow. Um, but in terms of what has it cost me, I think the most that it's costed me, I'd say is um, time, energy, obviously a lot of money, like a lot of money. Um, and most of it's not on legal fees. Um, so I learned very quickly in, from reading on the internet, putting pieces together that are out there that, and that was why I, I decided to find my parent, but I, I really quickly realized that going through the legal route's not going to get me anywhere. I mean, in legal fees, I probably spend, ah, let's say $60,000, give or take 60, maybe more. All of a sudden, I'll probably be like, eh, am I like 70 or 80? 
legal fees. Uh, I probably spent fifty in traveling, fifty thousand in traveling. No, and I and I don't stay in like super high end stuff. I stay like the bare minimum stuff, you know. But as you guys know, true flying to Japan, it's not cheap, and I've done it multiple times, and I stay there for prolonged period of times. Uh, the world really has cost me its time, time and and the value that I add or can add and learn and learning. And what I mean learning is where I work at. Like there's so many opportunities for me and I've lost those opportunities of growth, personal growth for me. Um, nearly three years now. Um, and that's something I have to make up. And another aspect I've learned a lot more. I've, like I said earlier, I've met wonderful people, like, you know, everybody on this call. Um, I co-founded this organization, which uh, I really want to make change. I really want to empower children. Um, I really want to bring this knowledge forward for everybody to know what's going on. Um, this NGO to get it going, at least to get the tech and everything going and ground up has cost me a fortune. Uh, all, most of my savings, to be honest with you. Um, but I really, before I used to, those who know me, I would say like, hey, um, I never questioned people before. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what, you know, Bob said and like, whatever. I really didn't see the ulterior motives of an individual. Now I like, everybody's like, what are their ulterior motives? Do they have one? And it really... Maybe see, yeah, there's a there's 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 a lot of bad in humanity. Something I never, I wasn't raised that way. I've never looked looked at uh looking at bad side of humans or anything. That's not how my family raised me. So, but now I I I question everything, and and I find myself doing. I'm like, this is not right. This is not who who I was raised to be. What's their motive behind doing A B C D to me? myself doing that um, I relationships wise um, this is going to sound kind of quite strange <clears throat> I have dated and I realized that some of the the one reason that my ex-wife or my wife technically the one thing that she did not like about me that she always complained about is true. Is that I work too much. And I don't spend enough time or dedicated enough time to another person. I've dated some people like, hey, you never talk to me, you never text me, yada, yada, yada. It's like, I'm busy, I'm working. And 
that's the one thing that I really regret for Yumi that I didn't give her that time. Now that I look back, I'm like, man, she was right. That's all she wanted was time. And I never gave her that. So I came to that realization that I, I did screw up there. And as dark as it may sound here, and because we all bash Japan for what they are, but I, I do wish that I could, I could have given her more of that now that I realize and done some self-reflection. Because, I mean, before find my parent, before me taking on this court case, I used to work 16, 17 hours, 18 hours a day. That's normal. That's normal in Japan. So, I mean, my ex would work that, that many hours and I didn't complain. Yeah. And, I mean, she would have made any excuse she could. So, I mean, in that aspect, she had no right to complain because if she had married a Japanese, probably would have worked even more. Well, if I, if I may chirp in in this uh, thing, so en Enrique has uh, a problem with working too much. Well, my problem was opposite. I was giving her too much time. If I had worked, uh, if I had worked like Japanese 18 hours a day, probably we might be still married uh, today. And uh, for me, you know, family, family time was something not sacrosanct, uh, what do you call it? Sacrosanct or something? Sacrosanct. Sacred. Uh, but sac sacred enough. Yeah. And uh, I, I, used to, I used to give her a lot of time. We were, uh, I was managing the time so we would be able to travel every two months or so abroad. She had a lot of opportunities to spend, you know, time with me and in, and actually enjoy that time. But uh, she was uh, sadly uh, a workaholic. So you see, what well, what happens in life if he's Japanese? We we should have swapped our wives back in the day, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the problem solved. <laughs> Well, in my situation with my family, I spent, I, when I wasn't at work, I was home. I owned part of the company. And so I had very lax hours uh, to the chagrin of my father, who and I, he and I used to work together. Um, but I made a point of being there every morning with my kids, eating breakfast with them, taking them to school. I made sure I was there to take them to school every morning. And I often cut out of work early to pick them up from the bus if I wanted to, or I would go have lunch with them at their school with them. So I was a very, very involved dad, all of which I'm sure has been shit upon and has been rewritten in the time they've been away. But I was very, very, very involved in their lives. I took them to a lot, if not all their doctor's appointments, 100% of their doctor's appointments that they would get shots at because my ex-wife was very good at making sure I took them to those. Um, I, I was at every pregnancy natal, prenatal appointment for both pregnancies, both times she was pregnant with two, you know, two sets of twins, never missed any of them. I was a very involved, I was the antithesis to the, the, the classic salaryman Japanese dad. I don't, I don't golf. I don't have hobbies. I don't go out with the guys. In fact, I don't have any guy friends really. So I, I had nothing distracted me from being with my family when I wasn't at work. And that worked very well until I didn't work. Um, and that freaked her out. But that, so 
that was, in my case, it was not a situation of neglect uh, from my end. It was in my, you know, what led to the demise of us was the neglect from her end of, of me and just almost flat out hostility uh, of me towards me, which I could never understand. I've, I've never in- embraced anybody in my life and had them bristle um, like she would just shudder almost if I hugged her. And you can only do that as my, as my Japanese attorney had the great insight to say, she says, it's humiliating. And I said, yes, it is. I couldn't put it in words, but she did. She said, it's humiliating to, to come up to someone and just the most fundamental basic elements of human touch and affection get rejected or crapped upon like you're being gross. No, and you try to kiss her and she would give that, okay, get away. No, oh God, I don't want to do that. You're like, what? You know, and you can only do that for so long before you're like, I don't think this chick digs me anymore. And I'm feeling rejected in all ways, you know, and, you know, that I'm sure in her lens, that's normal for Japan. But she had spent 20, we have, she'd, we'd spent 24 years together in, in the United States. We had four children. Eventually, I think you're going to catch on to some of the U.S ways, you know, the Western ways. Um, but that was, it was a very, very long relationship. And to pick up on what a lot of this started with, I still to this day, I mean, there, there are two main players in here that actively are participating towards my heartbreak. Um, one is my ex-wife and as stupid as I am, about this I don't in terms of stupid as a trust but I'm factually I miss her in my heart I miss her and despite what she I'm upset with what she did maybe I'd forgive her probably would actually if she came back don't I don't know I could trust her very well for a while but I I miss her I want her back she is one of my favorite people in the whole world the reason why I spent all those years with her there's a reason why I married her and it's hard to replace that person. In fact, I never will, as I said before. I can never replace that person. I'm getting emotional, sorry. Um, to balance my emotion, I have no love loss, and I will go on the record as awful as it sounds. I wish for my father the most awful, prolonged, tragic death any human being can ever suffer on the face of this earth for all time because what he did is inhuman and violates the most basic elements in what he's continuing to do in in one, what he did with, with me with regard to our business subsequent to that. And then now participating actively being a co-abductor of my children um, is beyond anything that's forgivable truly. And I long, I've long given up on the thought of karma coming and getting them because all karma is about is based in revenge. I don't look at revenge other than at some point I hold out some hope that probably the single worst thing that could ever happen to him is that my kids find out the truth and look back at him with this look of utter crying betrayal and hurt in their heart. Not for, cause I don't want them to experience it, but I want him to see that and know that that, you rotten motherfucker did that to my children. 
And I want you to see that. And I want you to die a million deaths when you look in their eyes and see what you did to them. You horrible excuse for a human being. So I miss my wife. And there's this other party that I wish the absolute worst upon. All right, guys, let's move the questions to our next theme of this particular episode, okay? So if you guys notice who are the people within this particular podcast or this call now, right? There's a lot of foreigners talking about what Japanese is missing, what Japanese government can do, or what is currently happening with the Japanese families as causing all these abductions and alienation to happen so rampant, right? Why are the Japanese people not talking much about it? Why are they quiet about it? Are they scared to speak up or are they being suppressed? What are your opinions behind the lack of communication on about this when it comes to the media and also, you know, social media included and the general traditional media when it comes to these issues? Yeah, I, I think uh, from my travels to Japan, I, I didn't really have much... Um knowledge of the Japanese culture prior to marrying uh, Yumi. Um, and even when we were married, she didn't really expose me much to the culture. I think she didn't, there's many, many things of the, her own culture that she didn't like about the Japanese culture. Um, the one thing that she, she always said is something of Japanese and nail that sticks out gets hammered back in. I didn't quite understand that. And, um, I think the reason why a lot of parents don't speak out is, I think there's three big reasons. Number one is, um, one, that nail that sticks out gets hammered back in by everybody else. This is herd mentality. Second is, uh, you know, you have no individuality, right? Um, and, and I think for them is shame. I don't know why, why there's shame of that something their children are kidnapped or they're getting divorced, but for whatever reason, they take it as shame, as failure. Uh, and last is, um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's a, if it's a, if it's a, um, if it's something to do with, with how they're raised or, or their background of just never questioning or, Yeah, just never questioning the their 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 the government or the superiors because there's no Yeah. That's my perspective. They just let it be. Well, I think um pretty much what you said is um they're ashamed. Um they're ashamed to even speak up at all. I mean, e either way, either side, if they are the kidnapper or if they're the, um, uh, the victim, you know, the left behind parent, either way, they're ashamed. like, I think there's more shame in being the left behind person because the narrative for them is that they deserved it. That, you know, they, the wife or parent or whoever ran away, they wouldn't have run away if you weren't so horrible and deserved it. So, um, you know, to speak up and tell people that your partner ran away from you 
with your child is like admitting there's something wrong with you and you get shamed. And um, so they, they don't even, they're ashamed to say anything at all about it. Uh, it's just always assumed that no one would run away from you unless there's a good reason or you were abusive. So they'll never, I don't think they'll ever speak up for that reason because um, the, the social shame is too, it's just too heavy. It's just it's too much for them. And um, they, they don't have any resources. There's, there's nothing for them, for them to fight. There's nobody backing them. There's, it's sanctioned by society and the government. So it's like, you know, massive gaslighting on them. I mean, they're already suffering for the loss of their kids or you know, whatever else was taking the loss of their partner, or their child and money. And then on top of that, they're going to get gaslit and they know it. So they, that's why they just, rather than even speak up, they'll just jump in front of a train. It's much easier than fighting back. Yeah, and I think on that, if I might jump in, is um, most of them, not all of them, but I'd say there's a part of them who I think it's a very narcissistic society. It is. It definitely is. And this, this narcissistic uh, thing started uh, as back in the day, my, my old teacher told me whom, whom I went to learn a little bit of kanji, like the basics of kanji. And uh, that teacher told me that Japan wasn't like that before. Japan was really all about keeping a tight-knit families together. However, the reason behind it was more of the financial side of things, basically them being poor and they need to pull resources together to, to, to keep afloat, than actually, you know, having uh, a, loving, a loving familial relationship. So, but that this narcissistic thing started namely somewhere around, uh, he said, at least he said, uh, in about like 60, 1965-70s, well, as soon as people get uh, affluent enough to afford anything they need, the basic necessities, housing, food, you name it, uh, you know, they started to shun their, their family members away because, oh, I don't need to listen to you no more. I don't need to co-depend on you. I can be on my own, you know you know leave leave me alone kind of thing and and in so you know in, in the last like 50 years this thing pro propagated so much so that now it's became a normalcy to even steal the children like literally it became so normal that uh, a child will be snatched every hour of every day in japan non-stop one child per hour will be snatched, is being snatched while we speak, and yet nobody will speak about it like a calamity. Yet if this kind of thing would be happening in 
you know, I don't know, let's say China, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, Iran, you name it, whatever, we will be screaming murder upon murder, day in and day out. We will not have any news. We will not even notice that Trump got elected. We'll be, oh my goodness, you know, Iran, one child every hour is being stolen. Wow, 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 this, that, so on and so forth. And yet when it happens in Japan, somehow we, we, we try to brush it aside. Oh, you know, it's Japan thing. Oh, you know, it's an island. We do, we do as, as, you know, culture. It's, it's a cultural thing. Yet why we go and complain, you know, to, to, to countries, let's say uh, a good example, North Korea or Middle East. Oh, you do like this. It's their culture, live and be. And, and Japanese themselves, they, they see these abductions. Maybe when it happened, number one, number two, number three, it was a, some sort of like a tragedy, calamity. And now it's became a normal thing, just normal thing. Oh, another child snatch. Yeah, so what's a big deal? Just another tick into the, into the ledger. So well, to them, though, to them, it's not stealing if it's your own child. I mean, I, I mean it, it, that's what it says in their laws. It says you can't steal the children, even if it's... Um, well, it, actually, it's actually, confusing because it says, I remember it says in the laws, you can't steal the children, but it doesn't count as stealing the children. Actually, the law, the law is, is vague, so to speak, but uh, the law prohibits children being taken away or kidnapped. So, right. you know, to, well, to, but to it be, says that if the child speaks up or yells or screams, then it's kidnapping. So when you take a child away and they're not fighting it or screaming then it's not kidnapping from what i understand in their laws but um uh no that, that's that's the a little interpretation of how the law is the law is very simple the removal of the child from whichever you know habitual place it's kidnapping screaming or not screaming doesn't matter if you take the child with ice cream or you know you, you're gonna scold him all the way to out out of the place but uh it's just the interpretation the way the waiver family the waiver family registry and understanding is done and i explained this some time ago to, uh, to enrique and and to you probably uh rachel about having these blocks so imagine having a block where three people let's say three people two parents and a child will be and then for whatever reason, uh, one parent with a child will leave that block. And now immediately, the moment uh, the leaving party goes and, and settles down in, in some other place, that will create another block. So now, even though you're legally still uh, you know, uh, married and have all parental rights and uh, responsibilities, just because the other party created this so-called another block, you cannot go there and take the child back. That is, that is exactly the point when we treat it as abduction. The initial removal, uh, sorry, the, the removal from the, from the initial block, from where everything started, for them is like it's family matter. So you don't know, the child wasn't abducted. They went to the park and they failed to come back. But uh, God forbid you go in, into that other newly created block and try to take the child back and return to the initial one. 
then they will scream abduction left, right, and center. So this is this is why uh, one of the reasons uh, that even like even Japanese themselves they they kind of fail to acknowledge that the child is being actually abducted. Like oh no, they they just you know just walk in the park. They're gonna come back sometime hopefully, but. In 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 reality, once once we leave, they barely ever come back. It's like literally barely ever. Well, and I, uh, yeah. Well, I remember when I um, went to Japan after my kids were taken for their six week visitation in Japan, and I I went there to see my kids and try to collect my kids back. Um, my ex called the police on me and when the police were standing there and I was standing there and my ex was standing there, he was discussing with the police and jokingly saying, you know, because I'm upset and I'm saying, look, I've got these US court orders. He kidnapped my children. I want my children back. And he says, well, you can't kidnap your own child. And he says this to the policeman right there. And the policeman's like, well, yeah, he's right. He's got a point. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, then I will take the children with me right now. And he's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm like, but they're my children. I can't kidnap my own children. And there, he was ready to arrest me if I took my own children. So, um, yeah, they're uh, very, they're very hypocritical. And um, it, it's, it, I probably in my instance, it's going with what Tom it says. Once the children had been registered at the city offices living at his address, if I took them away from that place, then I'm kidnapping them. But, um, but you know, he, he got the police officer on the same page with him where he's like, well, I couldn't have kidnapped them because they're my kids. And I tried to make a very logical counter argument saying eh, they're my kids too. So can't I take them? And he's like, no, that's kidnapping. <laughs> but, but you see, this is, this is the reason why, why the cop He's not being, so to speak, uh, hypocritical. He's he's using this block logic, which I just nah, explained it's, it's to you. Not, it's not that plain with that block logic. They're just fucking assholes. And in case in yeah, point, it's, it's, that's it. But I, I but get your I block can't. thing. Your block thing, in theory, it's true, but that's not that's not what he's thinking. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't the conversation at hand. The, the police officer didn't respond well. He's registered. I can see it right here because we didn't have the registration papers in front of us or anything like that. But... You know, at that moment, in that time, their their argument was, well, the father didn't kidnap the kids because he's the father. Right. In that particular conversation. Tom, and Thomas is right. Time, Thomas is right. That's how they'll spin it legally yeah. in court. Yeah. But that's not what the the peanut head police officer is thinking. Right. Well, I, we know we know what he was thinking, but uh, you. He's just thinking. He helpful. was just thinking. He was just thinking. Oh, is it Japanese and non-Japanese? Uh, he can speak Japanese. I'm going to say with this guy, it's easier to communicate. Oh, of course, with him. of course, it. that done. that that is a given. As you like to say, done and dusted. But uh, the thing, the thing, how we come up with these kind of uh, retarded thoughts, you need. You, it's it's helpful to understand the background. What you know, how, how it's where it stems from. And this, this is where, where it, uh, half of it, this is where it stems from. It's uh, very logical for us no, I, I, because we, we, we are raised differently, but it's very logical to them. I, I would say this. My, like I said, I, and I told, I told SK this, or Thomas, I think I told you. My coworker told me yesterday, she said that wife was, Jap wife was Japanese, 
Husband's American, two children. Husband died of cancer, age of 32. The mother got the children and went to Japan. The parents of the grieving uh, child of the 32-year-old. It's like, well, my, where's my grandchildren? I want to see my grandchildren. Japanese widow said, tough luck. You'll never get to see your grandkids ever again. And this is not even any animosity. None. The, oh, the, that... the, the child died, or the grandparent's child died. So her, her, her husband died. That's it. That's Jap all it took. Japanese, Japanese are very good at cutting ties, bonds. Uh, we, we learn that the hard way. So, so you know, once, once they make this decision, for whatever reason that might be, whatever reason that might be, once they made their mind saying, I'm about to, to get the scissors and cut it, once they cut it, it, it's barely ever can be put back together. It's just for them, it's inconceivable. How can, uh, how can this relation be continued, even though the love, the loving part of it is done? Well, you, you know, you don't need to love each other. You can be just civil. You know, with a lot of people, we're just civil out and about. We don't love them in particular. We don't hate them. But we're just civil. It's a zero-sum game. Japan, this, yeah. It's either everything or nothing. Yep. No, and, and to touch on, the, there's a few buzzwords we threw around. One of them is narcissism. And how you create a narcissist is, out of, is total neglect as a child. So they form no yep. attachment to either parent. And so the affluence you talked about is a breeding ground or one of the things that perpetuates yep. it. But what do, what, how the Japanese are so susceptible to narcissistic behavior is because there is no humanity grounding them. We have the United States, Western countries, both say the United States because I can speak with authority about U.S., right? We have a fundamental underlying sense of humanity in individual sovereign individual, you know, rights, okay? The value of the yep. individual, in, in, inalienable rights, right? Japan is a collectivist society. No individual has any right that, that is in excess of the, of the right of the group. So they were basically, they are and were set up to fall into these narcissistic behaviors really easily because they don't have that, that grounding, that anchor of humanity. You look at the Japanese psychology, Educate, psych, psych, their understanding of human psychology is archaic, in, if not barbaric. And, um, you know, and, and I say this not because I'm a scholar, but I would, dollars to donuts, know more, hell of a lot more about, like, uh, about psychology and child psychology than any one of the quote-unquote evaluators and child psychologists I've interact, ever interacted with in Japan because I've asked them point-blank fundamental questions. They look at me like I got a dick growing out of my forehead. Like what? <laughs> and they're, it's, they don't get it. They are not taught because as a society, they don't value individuals. And so as advice to the Japanese that are listening to this in English, and I don't know if we're going to do this in Japanese, but in English, you can understand in English, one of the things that they can do is individuals, again, speaking as individuals in that environment or how to relate is if they are fortunate enough to be parents, and if they are able to relate to our problem, our situation, as they imagine for a moment that their child is gone and taken from them, 
that feeling they have inside them, that's not for an object. That's not for a pet. That's not for a plant. That's for an, an actual human being. They need to channel that energy, that feeling, and start looking at their children and other people with that same sort of compassion and understanding. And when they go about their world, conduct themselves and, and hold others accountable to dealing with each other with compassion and understanding. Look to their officials that way. Instead of resigning to the reality like, oh, it's just this is the way it is, say, screw that. That doesn't have to be the way it is. As Enrique already touched on, the zero-sum game. It is possible and it's better for all of us as humanity if we always are looking for win-win solutions. I hate the word compromise um, and I don't like to use because compromise is evil in often cases because in a compromise between food and poison, only death can win. And so I don't like the idea of compromise because there are truly horrible things on the other side of that equation. No matter how small it is, it's still awful. Um, I'd rather come to win-win decisions that are based on what the fundamental truths are, what is going, what's in the best interest of perpetuating this individual in this, this situation, this family. Is it in the best interest to deny access to another, to a child who has love for their parent, just like the parent has for that child? Is that right? No, it's not right. It's wrong. So when, if there are Japanese people listening to this and they want to relate Start turning it around and looking at it. If I were the child, what would I want? Not what, not like, well, who's got more money? Who's got the better house? Who can, no, what would I want? And a child, if they can reflect back, fundamentally wants their parents, both of their parents at a minimum in their life, if not in the same house under the same roof. Because children know when their parents are around, children know they are safe barring some psychopathic person. And we don't make our decisions in this world based on the extremes and the fringes. So anytime anybody wants to bring up extreme fringe cases like DV, fuck you. You're an idiot. You've just, you've just thrown yourself out of the discussion. Okay. Do, we do not make decisions based on the margins. We make decisions on the greater whole. The greater whole is that people and children want to be with both their parents. When both their parents are around, even if they're arguing, the child still knows they're safe because my parents are here. They're my rock. They're my foundation. And by the sole custody rules of Japan and by legally removing half of their foundation in their life, Japan is minting destroyed children. And a destroyed, unattached child is the breeding ground for narcissism. And one of the things that narcissists do that people have talked about here is that they have the love bomb, which we, they're not capable of doing in Japan too much, other than, unfortunately, Rachel, I'm sure, was exposed to it because your ex-husband seems classically trained in narcissism. The love bomb. And then if, you don't, if they don't like you, they devalue you. And if they don't need you, they discard you. Like, like you're like, literally like you're dead. You don't exist. And so that's why we have such rampant discard in all these discussions. It's like we're trying to be erased because that is what a narcissist does. And so it is a very narcissistic country. And it's based on that sort of, well, if you're of no value, and again, like a taker, or not a taker, but a matcher and a taker. If you are of no value to me, if there's, if there's no quid pro quo capable, forget it. We blow it up. We don't, I don't need you anymore. I move on. 
And so that is a lot of what Japan is based on. If Japanese want to change this, they have to, uh, as an individual, change the way they do stuff. When they're be mindful of their interactions with people and relationships, am I being uh, am I being at least an equal part of this relationship? Am I looking to get more from this person than I'm giving? That type of thing is what starts it turning. And when you know, also parents can refuse to fight, it, refuse to enrich the divorce divorce incorporated over in Japan. I mean, Jesus, criminy. It is, it's unconscionable and human that divorce attorneys not just get paid for their time, they get, a pay, they get a percentage of the reward, but they also get residual payments of any child support or spousal support. That, that is rife with corruption. That's just, that's breeding ground for that. And if there are people in this audience that are not from Japan, that aren't aware of that, know that. That the Japanese legal system, particularly the family law, has that kind of financial incentive to make sure people fight and they go to the mattresses and they do the most destructive, awful, they're the worst human beings possible in that, in that process because they are enriching themselves. Unlike the U.S. divorce courts here, there's only two kinds of practices of law that cannot get paid a percentage, patent attorneys and family law attorneys. They can't get percentage of the awards. They, only, they can only get paid for their time, Okay. In Japan, there's a financial incentive, not to mention that money gets spread around to the politicians and to all the other people. Like in my impeachment before the, I, I filed for the five Supreme Court justices in my case that was filed with the diet, we listed out uh, evidence that shows all these DV shelters are part of this sort of arm's length transition cabal with the government and the Family Law Association, basically 90%. Or, or right around that, all the family law attorneys are part of the Japanese Communist Party. So, I mean, there's, they're very proud of that fact. So there is corruption all throughout the system in Japan. And ultimately, the, the only the people that pay are the parents and ultimately the children. And so it is, it's very difficult to change that. Fundam it's very difficult to change that within other than if parents just decide not to fight anymore and just say, you know something, this is, these are both our children. Let's not feed that beast and let's come up with an amicable situation and then change the law to joint custody or joint, joint parenting time actually is, is what we ultimately want. Not necessarily custody, but joint parenting time. Rhetorical question here. Um, so just like Afghanistan, the United States, it was a hot, uh, hotbed grounds for, for breeding terrorists, uh, I'd say that um, wouldn't we all agree that uh, based on being raised in a country where you can express love or individualism, it, Japan's a hotbed uh, for traits of breeding communism. No, no communism. They're, they got collectivists. No, they're. You know, I don't know. I, I'm. I, you know, that you've thrown that out there. Uh, I don't know if if China and Japan are going to be that different in the near future. You know, exactly. Very That's why I threw it out there. What? That's why I threw it out there. Yeah, I, think I don't know if, it's, if that. I don't mean that to be provocative. I'm serious because, you know, mm -hmm. China's got cash and they got money and they're getting all of our money from around the world. They're really good manufacturers and, quite honestly, capitalists when they need to be. And at the end of the day, it's as we as we flip across the other part of the the ocean over there to Japan. They call about Japan Inc. 
you know, one of the greatest, if people are wondering what can we do, one of the greatest ways of affecting Japan's behavior is to not buy their product. And that's it. They got nothing else to offer. They have an abundance of people and abundance of fish. And if we don't buy their products, they're done. They're on whole a massive export country. They don't import much, um, but they're export. And if, as countries, if we wanted to affect change in Japan, we affect change economically. And that would be a very effective way of doing it. You know, and say boycotting Japanese products, although that's kind of a loaded well, the, word. The, well, that's what I'm saying, James, is communism. Just think about China now. Yeah, it's just that it's just that one has a facade of being democratic, the other one doesn't. That's all. Exactly. No, I'm I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, and I never thought of it that way. That's pretty cool. My last question is: I know I, James kind of covered it already. Is like, but like literally, what are our next steps? What can we do? We have Vincent, who is leading the EU side of things, and he has connections in Japan. And then if he has no several people in the EU, we have that other organization, I mean, I'll name them, back home here in the United States, who has several connections to the United States government. Um, we can leverage Scott McIntyre with Australia. Um, Chris Smith, right? He's been on record that he wants some change. What can't we at Find My Parent do and, and with the help of James, Rachel, Thomas, Vincent, and everybody else who's out there, what can we do and collectively come together and say like, hey, um, let's get the US Congressman Chris Smith, several diet members of Japan and several French parliament, uh, parliament members together. Like, let's do something. How can we go about that? Because I think if we were to do that, like this trip axis of powers yeah um that's that's a great question and it, it's so unfortunate that there's not more cohesion because the reality is there are so many actors whether they're foreign actors local actors working for a better future for japanese children for children around the world and pushing for joint custody the issue is that they do not work together Anecdotally, we've been told many reasons. Sometimes it's because of pride, unfortunately, that some people just want to be the, the head of the movement. They want to get all the credit for what's done. And they uh, fear that another NGO or actor might come in and kind of take the spotlight from them, which is very unfortunate because, I mean, at the end of the day, if positive change happens for, for children in Japan and families in Japan, we should all be proud of it. And the last thing that we should be worrying about is who is responsible for this change. I mean, I find my parent that's always been our stance is we, we don't care who's responsible for it. We don't need to have um, the spotlight put on us. We just want to support for for a better future for Japanese children. So that's a reason. I think culture is another reason. So a lot of um, a lot of the actors are, are foreigners, maybe from the Europe, from Europe, from the US. Um, and then you have a lot of local actors, Japanese, and they might have very different opinions about how things should be done and what needs to be done for change. Again, our stance has always been 
we will never actually know what is the turning point for change until it happens. So what we believe is that each organization should focus on what they're best at. There are some organizations that are really great at diplomacy. They have strong connections to politicians in different countries, and they're really good at it. There's some organizations that are highly tech savvy, and they can do amazing things with technology. They should focus on that. But at the same time, we should be working together so that we can keep each other informed, you know, support each other in, in different areas where we have a competitive advantage, et cetera. But unfortunately, it's not happening. And I, I think we're quite, we're quite far from that. Yes. So Find My Parent um, does a lot for parents and for children. I think children are a group that we often forget about because they're behind closed doors. It's so much harder to reach children, but we shouldn't forget that it's so much even more important to reach those children because, again, they're not fully developed. They're highly vulnerable and they don't have a voice. It's so hard to reach them. So for parents, uh, we do a number of things. We have a parent support group. Anybody's interested in joining that group, please get in contact with us or click on the link in the description. Um, that allows parents from all around the world, not just Japan, to lean on each other for emotional support, for advice, for tips. That's really important um, service that we provide for parents. We also are working on building our partner list. We, we would really like to have a good list of partners, whether that be legal firms, mental health professionals, other NGOs, um, even translators, notaries that parents can search for on our website so that when they need the support in any country around the world, they can easily find uh, it on our website. And, and we provide a lot of knowledge resources to parents through our Knowledge Hub. Um, some of that is content that we create on our own to give them straightforward information about parental alienation abduction in countries around the world, not just Japan. And then a lot of it is, is resources um, that are linked from other websites. Some of them can be you know, videos, stories, guidelines, and then go into really even very technical reports from governance, from governments about parental abduction and alienation. So that is, and then finally, actually, I should also mention finally, is we really strive to empower parents and children by giving them a platform to share their stories, giving them a platform to allow their voices to reach the world. And we do that through our Your Story initiative on our website, where parents can tell their story in written format and videos on our website for the world to see what is what has happened to them and their children. And through our podcast, where we host um, a number of left behind parents and even children. And again, they can tell their story in many languages so that people can understand what's happening to them. For children, we, we do the same things. Um, we, have a, we have a podcast that we are launching soon that is dedicated just to children, for children, by children, so that children can, can hear real stories about how others have managed, not just through parental abduction, but even, even divorce and the starting of parental alienation. Because again, it's very hard for children to find people they trust to talk to. And so we think that by using technology, we can, we can give them some of that advice. We can let them know that they're not alone, that others have gone through it and others have um, successfully managed the situation, let's say. Um, 
And then we also um, are launching a hotline for children. We will start with Japan, where they can reach out to our volunteers to get some support, some advice, just somebody to talk to. Again, because it just doesn't doesn't exist. It's, it's not there for children enough. Um, so those are really the the main initiatives and services that we are providing for parents, children, and even grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Because let's not also forget that these people have lost a very important part of their families as well, and they often need support. Yeah, uni un unity unity is uh, one big missing thing, and uh, uh, about this organization in US, uh, they're big, they're somewhat loud, yet unity is missing, and because it's missing, you know, it it's just talk for the sake of talking, unfortunately, and being talking and and well, okay, so. They produced. Uh, they were able to produce the the Goldman Act, and now some somebody came up with the idea that oh, so we produce an act, but now we need to produce another act to empower that act. Like uh, that act uh, has enough empowerment on its own. It's just people don't want to use it. So, if if they so want to be, you know, on this uh, like on on the top of power side of things let them be but maybe go and lobby these these politicians at the same time not to actually just create something but use what you created use just put it in practice what you just created well um you know i'm i'm new to all this so i don't know how um to motivate people in power. I don't know how you can do it other than money. And even if I had money, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But I mean, how, how to use that to motivate them? Because at the end of the day, they're not going to, they're not going to push Japan, I, I guess, because of the, you know, the bases, they want to have their presence there and they want to play nice. So, I mean, I remember when I met with um, my congressman, with uh, a, a representative from back home and they suggested um back home suggested uh not cutting a deal that was in the middle of negotiating about airplanes that japan wanted and um the suggestion was to not give them planes until they return my kids and you know that you know that never that discussion never even like happened again. I mean, it's just, I mean, it was a good suggestion, but I'm sure nobody wants to rock the boat with Japan for whatever reason. I mean, you know, and I don't, I don't know, how are we ever gonna know what secret agreements or what ties they're trying to keep? You know, I, there's no way, I, I think there's no way for us to really influence that. I don't know how we can do that. I, I'm I'm just baffled when it comes to US and this basis question. They want to have presence and whatnot. And that is even more of the of the reason for them to be able to, to do almost, I would say, whatever they want with Japan, because Japan, you know, they can complain about having US troops in here, but the moment US troops 
leaves Japan, Japanese know very well that Chinese troop will replace Americans in a jiffy, like literally the last American will be stepping out. And at that very moment, the first Chinese will be stepping in. And, and therefore, uh, Japanese know that. And, you know, America should be more than able to say, look, you know, you don't want our troops. Okay, sod off, you know, go, go defend yourself. We'll see, we'll see how long, you know, how long you will be able to do that. An hour, 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, but obviously it doesn't work that way. We can't. And, uh, we don't have the power to just say, let's call them back. You know, there's nothing we can do. And America's never going to do that because they they like having that presence there. So they're never going to do that. Uh, no, but they, they never, they're never going to remove this presence uh, from, from these shores anyways. So even, even just bluffing, like, okay, fuck off, you know, we, we, we're pulling out. The same, way, the same way you were bluffing very good with, Iraq, Afghanistan, you're bluffing like for, for a good 10 years. So you can do exactly the you same never, with Japan. It's not about literally getting out of here, but it's just letting them know that, well, you know, if we want to. Yeah, we but leave. nobody is going to bluff because nobody who has, nobody in power has their kids kidnapped. They don't care. They don't care about our kids. We're nobodies. They're not going to do that for our kids. Well, what one bit of, bit of advice I want to give on this is I think we, like I said, I've talked about the social media things, but along that and a finer point, if we were to glorify and amplify the hero, quote unquote, heroes of child abduction return um, and the politicians, that would shine a bright light on them, particularly as we're coming into an election cycle, like Chris Smith is a hero. Um, Mitch McConnell is a hero because he's gotten more kids back than any, any other senator in the U.S. history. Uh, he's been instrumental in that. You've got other heroes. I will tell you that, in fact, the heroes are decidedly to only one political party in the U.S., not the other, um, which also might be an awakening for those on that side to maybe shore it up and step up. But shining a light on, their, on the success of doing this all the while we, sh we highlight every time we bring it up, we bring up the problem. Every time we show a hero about it, we bring up the problem, right? And so now it's really hard for someone if you glorify Chris Smith and say he's, he's, he's instrumental. You know, everybody go out and vote for Chris Smith. He's a wonderful dude, all that stuff. It's really hard for his opponent to come back and say, well, well, I don't care if he's for kids. You know, so what if he's, he's no, you can't. But they're the the strategic move on that part is to co-opt that message and say, well, you know something, I'm going to fight harder for these kids. Well, great. Now we got both people arguing about who's going to serve our needs better. Right. Now the conversation's out there. Someone's going to come up with something. I love this, James. Know? I love this, and James. So that, that's my advice. I love this. And I think I'm going to talk to you later in the week. And uh, while I'm in Mexico for work, I'll, I'll ping you about that. Cause I love this idea. I, I, I just yeah. want to put a, a closing part. Uh, praise. Praise the heroes and shame the villains. So every time there is opportunity, shame Japan, shame the doctors. So that that is that is also very important. Praise the heroes, shame the villains at every single opportunity. Every time you praise congressmen from saving a kid, bring up Japan, bring up their appalling uh, record with abductions and children issues, and and that will that will move things forward.
you know, praise the individual, shame the country. Don't ever shame anybody in Japan, shame the country. Um, because we, one, particularly our narrative, we like, we like the David and Goliath story. Also, um, it's Japan that signed the treaty and it's ultimately it's Japan that's not returning children, even though they want to push it off individual people in Japan. It's Japan that signed the treaty. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being here and spending your afternoon with me and the podcast listeners. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO, or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care till then. Bum, 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 bum.